podcast. Today, Mark Pinsky, who was a radical at Duke in the 1960s, wrote for underground newspapers of the day before beginning regular freelance works for such newspapers as the New York Times. Back then, you could do that if you were a legitimate writer. Uh, when he decided to uh, consider the position of radical not one that was best suited to a, a career choice where he wanted to make any money, he went to work for mainstream newspapers, and his writing career has spanned the globe and the nation, and he has spent uh, the predominant amount of the time writing about a variety of subjects. Um, he covered politics, crimes, and finally religion, where he wrote for the Los Angeles Times during the heyday of the TV evangelist scandals, and on religion and culture for the Orlando Sentinel, where he also wrote A Jew Among Evangelicals, a book that examined what it was like to be Jewish in the deep sunbelt where Baptists and other evangelical sort of uh, denominations reign. His book, The Gospel According to the Simpsons, got a lot of attention. It's a best-selling look at how television's longest-running comedy is infused with churchgoers and other religious topics and themes. He offered similar observations in a book about the spiritual themes of Disney. And since leaving full-time newspaper work back way back in 2008, he has concentrated on writing his books. He also freelances for such publications as USA Today, the Harvard Divinity Bulletin, he uh, does college lectures around the country and has served as an adjunct teacher at the University of Central Florida. And he's held numerous prestigious fellowships, including Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School, the University of Cambridge, Templeton, and of course, Duke University Divinity School. His latest nonfiction book is Unfinished Business, The True Story of an Appalachian Cold Case Murder. And this book represents a return to, to true crime. Uh, he's covered number of, a number of murder cases over his career, including Ted Bundy and the Jeffrey McDonald. So he, he got on this one and really did an in-depth study. It's interesting. We talk about it in, in the interview. Mark is the first full-time journalist on the Thinking God podcast, and he is an old-school, solid reporter at that. You can tell just by talking to him. And I think you'll find his insights uh, equally interesting. Well, now, you were a reporter sort of during the last days when being a newspaper reporter was a good job, right? That's correct. And That's correct. Uh, how did you get started in journalism? I got started when I was a student at Duke University, and I worked on the campus paper. This was now the late 60s, and so I was very much a part of the 60s. It shaped the rest of my adult life, politically at least, and personally to a large degree as well. And so a number of us who were of the leftish persuasion gravitated to the, the campus daily, which was called the Chronicle. And at one point I had a column called the Readable Radical. And so I did that until I graduated, which was about a year late for, um, for a variety of reasons. And um, from there I sort of segued to the underground. It was then called the Underground Press. It's now called like alt-weeklies in many cities. Mm -hmm. And I worked on two or three of those, helped started some. Uh, we also taught other dissidents, uh, high school students, uh, anti-war GIs, were at Fort Bragg or Fort Jackson, how to put out their own newspapers. So it was a, a highly politicized time for me. And then the early 70s came, and it looked like uh, we weren't going to have a revolution, so I might as well plan for a career. <laughs> <laughs> And so my skill set was in journalism, and I tried to, tried to meld my political consciousness with journalism. And so through the 1970s, I gravitated to um, 
writing about uh, justice and race and uh, capital punishment. And so I wrote about a number of cases, first in North Carolina, then I spread out throughout the Southeast, uh, cases where it looked as if uh, people were being railroaded uh, to the death penalty, to the death house, death row. And so I began writing about them, first for sort of lefty magazines like The Nation and The Progressive and people like that, nationally. And then I had a friend who got me in as a stringer, which is a freelancer, for The New York Times. And so I began writing for them as well about these cases. And it, the, uh, the atmosphere of The Times was sympathetic to learning about these things. So I pretty much did that for much of the 70s. And I learned a lot about how to cover crime, criminal justice, murder trials, things of that nature. And um, I like to joke that I started the 70s writing about uh, defendants who were poor, black, and innocent, and got so good at it, I ended the decade writing about defendants who were wealthy, white, and guilty. <laughs> so, and so by the end of the 70s, I was, at one point I was commuting between covering the trial of serial killer Ted Bundy in Miami and Green Beret um, Dr. Jeffrey McDonald in Raleigh. And I got pretty good at that, just technically, but I felt like I was sort of getting away from my original purpose. And then at the end of the 70s, I covered a really traumatic case in which some friends of mine were shot and some killed, called the Greensboro Massacre in November of uh, 1979. And I really had to, came to a crossroads as to what my role was. Could I do both things? Could I be a political person and could I be a professional journalist? And I felt that in this particular case, I'd had enough. So I sort of walked away from, uh, uh, from, from murder journalism and uh, criminal justice journalism. And I still done some other things about corporate farms and economic disparity. So it was all part of a piece for me. And then um, uh, I went to uh, Columbia, the journalism school, to sort of get that ticket punched for me. And uh, that worked out fairly well. And then uh, I got married, and my wife and I uh, had an offer to go to China where I worked as an editorial advisor for the New China News Agency in Beijing called Xinhua, and uh, was there for about 15 months, learned a good bit about another culture, um, a non-Caucasian culture, and uh, learned what it was like to frighten babies just because of the way you looked. Um, and I also kept in my freelance career uh, to a lesser degree from China for my usual clients. But I focused on culture, movies, crafts, food, something which wouldn't cause my bosses at the New China News Agency any embarrassment. So then I came back to, uh, to Durham, where I basically lived since I went to Duke, and, um, and I thought, well, I'm approaching 40. If I'm going to do anything, uh, if I'm ever going to get a regular job, I better do it before I was 40, because no matter how good I was or how great newspaper clips I had, um, no one was going to hire me. Uh, they would worry, you know, does he drink? Will he come in on time? Can he deal with authority? Right. So I reached out to some Columbia friends of mine, and I got a job uh, in uh, 1984 working for the Los Angeles Times in Orange County, California. All right, before we, go much, fur yeah, before we go much further with that, we're, I don't want to get too linear, but I don't want to cover everything. Um, you're from Jersey, right? Uh, suburbs of South Jersey, yes. Born okay. in Miami, but raised in South Jersey. Oh, okay. And... Tell me a little bit how your spiritual journey sort of influenced. I mean, how did you end up at Duke, first of all? Because, I mean, sure. Duke is not a whole lot like Jersey, I understand. No. Um, uh, my, my religious background was that I was raised in a 
conservative Jewish home in the South Jersey suburbs, was very much involved in my synagogue, was very much involved in, in youth work, um, youth groups, and I sort of rose to a sort of uh, level while I was in high school. And um, I, I just had a strong int- in influence, uh, as much cultural as religious, but I, I, I drank deep from the well and uh, never went to rabbinical school, but you know I was sort of in that mil- uh, milieu. And then um, when it came time to apply for colleges, I really thought I needed to get away from the insular suburban Jewish culture. So I applied to um, Duke, Georgetown, and UVA, and got into all three. And UVA at that time didn't have any women, so I had to cross them off the list. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Duke was the furthest away. <laughs> so so I, I purposely did not apply <laughs> to Penn, which, which, which is right across the river. I just would have been under my, my parents' and my family's gaze too closely. So I went to Duke, and as soon as I got to Durham, I, I developed an interest in the... Uh, Experience, the Jewish experience in the American South, and how people who how people how Jews came to the American South, and how they confronted issues like race, and culture, and maintaining their own spiritual development. So that was, I, and I began writing about that subject um, when I finished when I finished it for a magazine, just because it drew it drew my 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 interest. And then in um, what was it like? I mean, what was the the Jewish experience in the late '60s like in Durham, North Carolina? Um, it was interesting because there were all these Jews who had come from uh, various suburbs in the north and the northeast uh, who were at Duke, and then there was the established Jewish community, which really began roughly around 1900 in Durham, and there was a kind of I say cultural clash uh, within those two groups. Um, because the Jews were a lot more liberal on civil rights, and uh, Jews who had lived there for a long time had basically reached a kind of quiet, if uneasy, accommodation with the issue of, of race. And I found that interesting. Um, some were actually brought down around 1900 to serve as um, cigar makers, uh, because uh, they learned that skill in, on the Lower East Side of New York, and the Duke family, among others, that were making... Uh, rolling cigars they wanted uh they wanted uh people who knew those skills and then some you know became merchants as we always do you know first with a pack then with a wagon then with a store downtown others frankly followed the cliche and became pawnbrokers so it, that ho- the whole study in in um in assimilation and what you hold to and what you compromise with was began to engage me and has engaged me really ever since then in um in uh, the spring of 1967, I had planned to go to Europe in the summer, in the spring, and the Six-Day War broke out, and I managed to get over to uh, to Israel, even though the State Department didn't want young people from America going there. And I spent that summer as a civilian volunteer with the Israeli uh, military in Sinai, and that was a another life-changing experience for me. We basically dragged in captured Egyptian uh, tanks trucks and artillery and shipped them back to Israel. And uh, at the end of the summer, I kind of came to a crossword, crossroads, do I stay or do I go, and one of those things that happened. And uh, I decided I would come back, and so I, I, I did come back, but um, much changed as to what is important and what is not important. Some of my friends, uh, the international volunteers, were killed in accidents, and so that really just focuses your mind about 
putting things in, into two categories, things that are important and things that are not important. And that really sort of can focus your, your life a bit. And so then, as I say, um, toward the end of the 60s is when my journalism career uh, began. And uh, first as a student journalist, then as an underground journalist, and then uh, ultimately as a, uh, as a, as a freelance uh, journalist for major newspapers, for the New York Times, Boston Globe, at that time the Washington Star, uh, Newsday. In those years, they had budgets. These papers had budgets, right. and they couldn't always get their own people there. And so once you were a sort of known quantity that you could deliver, but also you know, point out stories before anybody else got them, you could kind of cobble together a, a living. If, I mean, in my case, I was single, living in a rented room. I didn't need much money. And so I really wanted to make my career, and uh, and so that's what I did. Did I, I know you're, you're you're talking about how it influenced you? Um, was there anything? Were you writing about spiritual issues at all at that time, or just it just sort of dictated how you approach things? Or no, um, I was basically writing about um, in those early years just about Judaism in the South and the nature of uh, assimilation. That is what of your faith you can hold on to when you're in a basically alien, if not hostile environment, and what things you had to compromise on. Often it was um, like dietary laws. People, if they couldn't get kosher meat, they had to deal with meat that was not ritually slaughtered. And so, you know, did they, when cars came in, could, would they drive on the Sabbath? Would they not drive on the Sabbath? Where would they put the synagogue? Where would they find the cemetery? And, and the, on, on a deeper level, um, how they, if, if you go back into the, uh, into the 19th century and even in the 18th century, how they accommodated uh, the culture of slavery and then later in the, in the 20th century of, of, of white supremacy. It's a complicated story, but it's an interesting story, particularly merchants. Jewish merchants often had trade with both uh, white people and black people, and how they manage that, and because it it got into contemporary issues, that really engaged me, less so than spiritual issues, I have to say. Now, at the time, were you practicing? I mean, were you going to synagogue? Were you involved, or were you just writing about it? Or when I went to Duke, um, I guess my first year, I taught I taught Sunday school at the local at the local synagogue, and I I went there not on a weekly basis, occasionally weekly basis, but mostly. For the high holidays, and I I stayed with that, um, and practiced the home parts of it. And when I was in China, um, I asked my mother to send me some matzah, and we we threw together some of the expats who were living in Beijing. We threw together a, a Passover seder, and wow. so I was always culturally engaged. Right. Um, and in terms of ritual, some, but not a whole lot. I have to say. Well, and we got to Los Angeles. That's a pretty big move uh, when you got to L.A. You went out there to cover uh, religious issues? Is that? Or did you go well, to record um, courts I, and I, government I, first? I, I got lost I, there somewhere. No, that's fine. Um, I was out there as a kind of general assignment reporter. And at some, place, some point, I had done a lot of investigative work on the East Coast. And that was one of the things that uh, let them take a chance on me at my advanced stage for, that, for newspapers. Um, and... That was around the time of the Jim and Tammy Baker. See, I was covering uh, that back here, so I, I covered some of those. So I was going to say you missed the fun stuff, especially in North Carolina when you right, took off. Right, right, and that, that's true. But I mean, really, shortly, I mean, I I could I could smell Pulitzer 
about six months before it happened. You just right. get a feeling for these things. They have a, a rhythm. And as it turned out, I went to Orange County, California, which was a huge center of religious broadcasting. Right. Uh, head, headquarters for Robert Schuler, the Hour of Power. Uh, Trinity Broadcasting uh, Network was headquartered there. Chuck Swindoll. Lots of um, uh, evangelical uh, uh, organizations and uh, ministries were there. So they basically said, we want you, we see what's happening around the country, we want you to draw on your investigative skills and focus that on, on religious ministries and particularly religious broadcasting. And so that's what I did for about the first six or seven years. And uh, I remember an editor coming to me and another reporter and say, look, we want you to, you know, turn Schuler upside down and shake him, see what comes out. Um, and I, I was spending a lot of time at various ministries and services um, I was maintaining my own Jewish identity. I, I had married by that time, and we were starting to have kids. And I, I didn't belong to a synagogue, but I always found a place to attend uh, my holiday services. And in, in the course of my work, because Orange County has a pretty significant, significant Jewish population, I was talking to rabbis and meeting rabbis and, and doing stuff, stuff along those lines. Well, those, then, those, those uh, groups you were mentioning they were they took such a hit you you actually watched the decline a lot of them after the baker stuff right i think i greased the decline of stuff <laughs> cuz i know so, yeah. I, I just remember the percentages of, of of you know firing employees and cutting budgets and moving you know some of the ones you mentioned ended up moving out and getting cheaper places and doing other things and right or moving or or moving to areas further away from the glare of big of big media right which they were, they were had some problems. I mean, I had, I mean, I had some adventures with Trinity, you would not believe. I mean, I, I went there one time to interview Paul Crouch, then then alive, and I learned later from somebody inside the ministry that while I was interviewing him, Jan had a group that was sort of praying against me. You know, um, just really, that was a very weird family. I mean, and they still are a weird, weird family for that matter. But <laughs> now, did they uh, know you were Jewish? Did that, or they just didn't like you because you're a reporter? Um, I, I, I made that plain uh, where I, I, I made no secret of it. And I really made it plain. I would often tell people that that's what I was. I was. But I mean, what I found both on the West Coast and the East Coast in covering religions, largely but not exclusively Christian and Protestant, um, was that a lot of the people I talked to were more comfortable with me being a Jew than with being one of their, their competitors. Um, hmm. They felt that I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, favor, you know, my my own flavor uh, of Protestantism over theirs because it was essentially I was out of the competition. You know, I was, <laughs> I was a Jew, and it's, you know, and 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 that really changed a, a good bit when I moved back to Florida, worked for the Orlando Sentinel, and cover religion exclusively. Um, there were some people, you know, there are some for some evangelicals, converting a Jew is like the brass ring, and so. Most people were, you know, I'd say I have a faith home, I'm a committed Jew, and that usually ended the discussion. When it didn't, when people kind of pushed me, um, I would say, look, um, uh, when the Messiah comes or comes back, uh, one of us is going to be very surprised, and, uh, and I'm willing to wait. You know, if it means a thousand years in the, in, the, in, in the fiery lake, that's fine. And that usually ended things. Uh, that that avenue of, the, and we could focus on what I was there for, and not me as a potential trophy. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about that. You moved to Orlando and you were covering uh, religion and culture and religion down there. And I guess that's where the, the book, The Gospel According to the Simpsons, grew out of that? Uh, it did. It did. Um, by that time, I had two young children. I think they were maybe four and seven, very bright kids. And uh, one of the things we took from the, from the Baptists, which I'm grateful for, is that we had no TV in the house during the week, period. Uh, fortunately, this was the era before you know, phones and screens, other screens. And so there was no TV. And so one summer, the kids, when we kind of relaxed things, although we always had to be there, uh, my son said he wanted to watch The Simpsons. And I said, well, here's the deal. You and I, and if your sister wants to, she can watch it too. We'll watch it. And if there's a problem, I'll have the remote and we'll just stop. And my concern, I was not a regular Simpsons watcher at that time, not a fan of the show. I had written about it when I worked for the LA Times when the show launched and it caused such a controversy with the T-shirts at school and, and George Bush and Barbara Bush and all the rest of it, Bill Bennett. Um, so I was aware of it. I was aware it had a very good, good reputation as being a clever show, though aimed really more for young adults than for kids. And my only concern at that time was, my primary concern at that time, concerns were one, portrayal of sexuality with the, with the kids and uh, language with the kids. And what I found was most of the sex jokes and references went over their heads. I watched when I, when I listened. And uh, the language, the kids didn't pick it up. As long as they didn't pick it up, I, I had no, no real problem with it. And what surprised me, I, I came to the show as a parent, essentially a concerned parent. But what concerned me, what, what, what struck me as a religion writer is that how much religion there was in this show and how much faith and spirituality there was in the show. I thought, well, maybe it's just um, the rotation, because in those years, there was uh, one year, I mean, one, one night, Sunday night, was, were the newer ones, and then different stations had, uh, were running the reruns. So you could really watch them you know, six nights a week if you wanted, and, and we did. Uh, so I said, all right, I, I'm going to go buy a guidebook, which is episode-by-episode episode guidebook, and I'll go through it with a, you know, with a notepad and see if, if what I'm seeing is representative of the entire series. And so I spent a weekend on the couch going through the guidebook and found out that it was an aberration. There's a lot, there was a lot of religion spirituality in, in The Simpsons. And so I first pitched it as an article from my newspaper, which got picked up. I later learned that they, I was not totally original in this. There were two or three other reporters around the country who had noticed it. My piece got picked up, and I thought, well... Um, I could turn this into a long magazine, I mean, a, a, you know, a long magazine article or a short book, and the money would be better for a book. Every journalist <laughs> really wants to be an author. And so I pitched it, and same story. I mean, a lot of people turned me down saying it's, you know, the Simpsons are over. This was, you know, 1999. <laughs> um, and agents and, and publishers turned me down. I finally found a receptive home at Westminster John Knox, which is the publishing arm of the Presbyterian Church USA, in part because in 1965 that press had published a book called The Gospel According to Peanuts. I remember that book, yeah. Uh, written by a then Divinity student, Robert Short, and it sold millions. It kept the publishing house alive for 30, 40 years. So they, I didn't have to explain the concepts, which I had to with other commercial publishers. But, you know, I, I tried academic houses, I tried commercial houses, I tried religious houses. 
Zondervan to- turned me down. Others, Thomas Nelson turned me down. But um, and we we came out. The book the book was published on September first, two thousand and one, and we had ten days of open field running until the twin towers fell. Mm. Twin towers fell. We shut down. Just totally shut down, like a lot of publishers. A lot of good books that came out that season uh, failed just because of you know what happened. Uh, but about three months later, we came back again, and we had nonstop publicity for 18 months. And not because the book was so great, I will have to say, but because of the subject matter, the sort of counterintuitive sense of it, Gospel, Simpsons, what? Um, did, and, now, uh, in the original version, did Tony Campolo write the forward, or is that in the he later? Did. He did. Okay. How nope. did that, how did no, that he, come he, to happen? How did that happen? Because uh, we've had I Tony on the th- podcast here. Yeah, I love Tony. Yeah. If I, if, if I ever became a Christian, it would be a Tony Campolo Christian, I'll tell you. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's funny. I was, I was casting around. We, we were throwing some names around. Who would extend our reach with a name like that, uh, with a book like that? And I was in the garage, and one of his books was on top of one of the bins. And my wife said, what about that guy? And I thought, hmm. And I did a little preliminary research. It turns out he was a fan of the show. And I got through to him in the way you have to sort of navigate these various things. And he was wonderful. He was wonderful. He loved the idea of it. And uh, he got it right away and wrote the wonderful, you know, wonderful forward introduction for the book. And uh, I'm sure that was kind of an imprimatur of it being okay to certain a certain branch of the evangelical world. Not all. There are a lot of people you know, who don't like Tony mm-hmm. for a variety of mostly political reasons, less than theological reasons. But it was wonderful. And, uh, and, the, and the book, uh, again, it was, it, was a, it was a paperback original, trade paper original. Uh, but it did, we sold 160,000 copies. And then we did a uh, study guide for, uh, for churches. I worked with a, with a Methodist pastor on that. Um, and I was speaking, I was on TV, network TV, local TV. Um, we were on the cover of uh, Christianity Today magazine. Wall Street Journal wrote about it. New York Times wrote about it. Um, it was incredible. It just sort of lifted off. Well, and, com- and, uh, and Tony was such a perfect, I mean, I've interviewed Tony over the years a number of times, and I, I thought about early on in The Simpsons, the fact, and he mentions it in the forward, that you know he has children, Bart and Lisa, and, right. You know. He, you know. If, if only he had married Marge instead of Margaret, it would have yeah, been. You know. And he and Tony. Perfect. Let's face it. Tony looks a little like Homer. I'm sorry. He does. The older oh, he, he gets, the more he looks like. Yeah. But you know, uh, he's, he's it was done. amazing too. To like you were saying, to see uh, here in the Deep South in the churches we've been involved. In, I raised my kids and allowed them to watch The Simpsons because I felt like the family values there were stronger than almost anything on television. Even though a lot of their friends. Even at schools, parents wouldn't let them watch it because they said it was right. inappropriate for kids. They didn't know what it was about. Right. That's, uh-huh. that's what I learned. I mean, as, as I said, I mean, I, I, I live in central Florida, Orlando area, and this is, this is evangelical country, and, and I was both writing about them, but I, they were in PTA, they were rec athletics. You know, I, mean, I, was, I was meeting the leaders in my job, but I was meeting the grassroots in my life. And that's what surprised me. They, they already got this before I got to it. I mean, they knew this. Um, and for a lot of particularly 
fathers and teen and adolescent sons, the watching of the show together was a bonding experience, mm-hmm. which at first surprised me, and then later I got it. Um, and, um, and so about two years later, because well, we, we had been so successful, my editor said at Westminster John Knox, what, what would you do next? I said, well, I thought, you know, what's a worldwide brand? Because that really helps to determine your sales. And I had remembered that when I lived in Southern California and my boy was like three or four before we moved, like a lot of parents, we watched a lot of the Disney features. And we, um, you know, we, it, it was uh, cassette, cassette tapes we did, you know, videos. And um, I had remembered noticing that what appeared to be a less specific but a, but a more consistent value system that sometimes referenced religion without being explicit about it. And when I, actually when I first got to or- Orlando, worked for the Orlando Sentinel, I think the first piece I did for the Sentinel was the, get, was the Disney Gospel, which was an easier sell than the Simpsons Gospel because Disney is our largest uh, employer. And, uh, and so that was the piece where I wrote when I came in 95. And shortly thereafter... The Southern Baptist Convention and others had this big brouhaha with Disney. So I was in the thick of that because um, Disney's the largest employer in our circulation area, and Southern Baptists are the largest denomination in our area. So when they clashed, you know, it, it was it was front page day in, day out. Well, you saw this, Mark, I'm sure. I covered the, I don't remember what year it was, the Orlando Convention during all that time, Southern Baptist. Yes. And I would just sit back and watch how many of them would leave the halls yelling about Disney and then take their kids to Disneyland, Disney World. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. No, no, no. It's true. I mean, you know, it's very hard because, you know, the Disney theme park has become really a cultural imperative uh, for parents and grandparents. I mean, and it, it's troubling to me because it's gotten so expensive that people who really can't afford it right. feel like they're somehow deficient as a parent or a grandparent if they don't sacrificially, which is a code word, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, come here and spend four or five thousand dollars in a week. It's just but And the crowds to boot. It used to be a you could move I remember Disneyland and Disney World when you could walk around and it wasn't just, you know, waiting on the subway, you know. <laughs> right. I mean there's there's still a way to you know to navigate that. <laughs> right, I, mean, I understand you some things a little easier. But yeah, I mean uh, I used to say because we because I wrote about it and we lived here, we were we were there a lot and you could see Come the summer around three o'clock in the afternoon, just these meltdown explosions of these kids and parents. Just the heat and the crowds just got to them, and they were just sort of, you know, explosion here, explosion there, explosion there. But um, why do you think the, so, these red herrings, though, like some of the Disney stuff and the Simpsons boycotts? And I, my favorite quote of all time was when Jerry Falwell, I'm sure you remember this well, came out and said that one of the Teletubbies was gay. Right. And, and they the, they the ambushed one of the creators, and the UK had not heard it, and obviously this was the first word he had received of it. And he had this blank look on his face, and he said, "They're puppets." <laughs> <laughs> you know, it just couldn't it didn't occur right. to him on any level that somebody could look these. Things. Right. Yeah, I mean there there is this tendency to overthink these things, um, and you know, and I have to guard against it because I I I write about the portrayal of. Uh, of religion, faith, and spirituality in in popular culture. My my key area is is animation, but 
I've also I also write about it in, in about it in movies as well. And so you have to be careful about finding things that aren't there. Mm-hmm. And you know I'm I'm real careful about that. I I have no patience when I was doing this on a regular basis. I didn't really no patience for these debates that are chock full of proof texting mm-hmm. you know mostly you know mo- mostly you know evangelicals but i mean i come from a talmudic culture and that you know they do that there and i just i'm, I'm re- i try to be cautious even though i make my living in part writing about it about not finding things that aren't there now do you still watch a lot of television go to a lot of movies I, I go to a lot of movies. I don't watch a whole lot of okay. television. And you, you know, I remember, I noticed one of the references when I was looking at some of the stuff online about you. Did you ever consider a book on King of the Hill? What I did was I felt like King of the Hill did not have a large enough fan base. I, I think you're probably to, right to support a book. So when we did the second edition of the Gospel According to the Simpsons in '06, I added a chapter on uh, King of the Hill. A chapter on Family Guy, a chapter on um, South Park, and uh, I think one other chapter. So each of these things, they had a constituency, but not enough to support a book. Gotcha. Um, and uh, but I did do a chapter on Family Guy. I found I found uh, King of the Hill really one of the most realistic, depressing oh. series I've ever seen. Most clever and I. Uh, Hank yeah. Hill, you know, that, that there's there's just, I don't know, I could go on and on talking about that, but yeah, you're right. It, it, almost everything he's worked on has been very clever, though, and very well done. Oh, yeah. Uh, Greg uh, Greg Daniels. And he's doing, uh, what, uh, Silicon Valley now, is that? Yeah, I mean, he's he's moved on. I mean, he's moved on and up to, uh, you know, bigger budgets and live people. Well, but, um, saying you do watch movies and stuff, are you seeing... A continued interest, you know, I mean, emphasis, uh, either intentionally, most of the time, unintentionally, or in whatever way, of spiritual themes. I mean, uh, there have been obviously examples like, uh, you know, in the last, I guess, last decade, like Tree of Life, which certainly divides people. People either hate it or love it, but they're talking about being able to read something into whatever you want to. I see two things. I see one, one is shows that are built around a spiritual premise, and they tend to be a very tough sell. To, to survive, it's, it's hard <clears throat> to do that week in, week out. At the same time, I see a sort of cultural integration of of shows that are about general topics, you know, crime, medicine, you know, whatever the standard tropes are. But I see spiritual issues and spiritual characters becoming part of the narrative, as if these are this is a normal part of life and since most of the, of the of the TV series were produced either in New York or Los Angeles where people don't until recently don't know people like that don't come in contact with people like that those kind of characters and issues rarely showed up except as sort of a, a very mean grotesque stereotype but I've noticed in the last 10 or 15 years that you know the religious person the spiritual person the spiritual issues Beyond the news of the day, I mean, beyond, you know, clergy sex abuse. I mean, just as a part of life, it sort of integrates into prime time and cable television. And I think that's healthy because it's like the last sign of cultural acceptance when that becomes part of it. I mean, it happened when they were, I mean, uh, when, when gay characters began appearing as part of larger shows, but not just about their being gay. I mean, they're a character, they have their own, and their own aspects, 
and they happen to be gay. Mm-hmm. So they bring a certain sensibility to it, but it's not, you know, not just about that. It's just a part of life. As gay people have become more and more, you know, a public part of American life, it becomes reflected uh, a little behind, I would have to say, lag behind uh, in, you know, in, in uh, particularly network TV. Network TV is the real, it's the kind of final hurdle. When you begin to see, you know, Muslims, m- Muslim characters, you know, or more and more uh, characters of, of women in authority, for example. And that was a big breakthrough, mm-hmm. you know, beyond, you know, but uh, not just the housewife. And, you know, many of those things you've mentioned were actually uh, part and parcel of The Simpsons over the years, you know, characters of other faiths and presented in, you know, ways right. that weren't, that, that went beyond the stereotype. Do you think spirituality in, it, in its, in general, has gotten a broader understanding which has helped the acceptance some? I think if you look at the polling, particularly the Pew polling, which is, I would say, pretty much the gold standard, but, I mean, Lifeway is okay as well. Um, is um, that more and more people who are unaffiliated are defining, young people particularly, are defining themselves as spiritual. And sometimes it's spiritual, but not religious, but sometimes it's a spiritual. Um, it's, it's more and more okay, because if you don't specify which spirituality you're talking about, it stretches all, all the way from, you know, charismatic Catholics to, uh, to new, new Agers. Mm-hmm. Hindus and Buddhists, um, and so they're not just kooks. They're not just marginal people, um, which until maybe 20 years ago they were. You know, if if a character popped up who was, you know, a religious person, they were usually a zealot of some sort, and uh, you know, oftentimes mentally imbalanced, if not just evil. Now it just it's an aspect of of character of character. Some of the, I think some of the Christian voices, I know a few people I've had on the podcast, uh, people like Brian McLaren, uh, yeah. uh, Rob Bell I haven't had on, um, but uh, his books have sort of opened the, opened the door a little bit to folks who were raised in a more tight evangelical s- system that may be looking for something a little broader. Right, and um, I'm, as a matter of, by coincidence, I'm planning to go to... Um Northland Church tonight, which is where um, where Joel Joel Hunters is the pastor. They're having a panel on uh, LGBT issues. Matthew Vines is coming, and they've had like 600 people have responded that they were coming. Um, and this is a real change. I mean, Joel is one of those people now. Alain is kind of a special case because you know a year ago we had the Pulse shootings that just sort of mm-hmm. you know shook our community to its core. And to their credit, the evangelicals who have not been the most open and hospitable, the LGBT people, they stepped up. And they were, they said, look, we have to have another look at the way we are perceived, if not the way we are. And so um, I know, you know, people from Crusade. Crusade is formerly Campus Crusade of Christ, which is right. headquarters here. And there are a lot, of, a lot of parachurch ministries here. So I know a lot of these people, both professionally and also just personally, because they're in the community. And I hear a lot about um, uh, Bell and McLaren and people like that. People are really sort of, this, this evangelical community is, uh, and I've written about this numerous times, tends to be suburban, middle class, college educated, corporate, entrepreneurial. 
you know, their roots may be on the farm and in small towns, maybe two generations earlier, but these are very much Sunbelt people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they, their theology is what it is, but their cultural integration to where they live is also a factor. So we have, we have several Christian radio stations. One is kind of, you know, kind of rocky, you know, um, you know, it's, they don't use bad words and they don't use, you know, really negative music, but it's one of the more popular FM stations. And they kind of navigate those waters. I think, I don't know if it was Rick Warren who said, you know, there's no such thing as, 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 as Christian music, there are Christian lyrics. Mm-hmm. You know, we, for so many years, a lot of these older characters said, oh, it's music of the devil and it's jungle music and it excites bad passions. And, you know, and, and as I said in one of my books, I mean, evangelicals, rather than rejecting many aspects of, of American culture, they tend to, you know, adapt it to their own needs. I mean, look at Veggie Tales. You know, I mean, parents didn't want, you know, Tom and Jerry beating up on each other um, and, and, and sort of Bugs Bunny beating up on people. And so instead of saying you can't or we don't or we don't allow, boom, they created an alternative. You, we have... Now, we have rock music, too. We have cartoons, too. We have movies, too. It's not as if you have to reject all these cultural manifestations. If you can adapt them, why not? Well, and you're in an area that may have re- have gone through one of the most rapid and uh, over overwhelming senses of growth. Because I can remember working and having to drive down in Florida maybe in the late 80s, and it, it, still between the coast, there was a lot of orange groves and dirt roads. Right. And now, I mean, it's, there's, you know, there, there's nothing but, you know, condos and theme parks and anything else you're yeah, talking about. So I'm sure the people that are there, like you're saying, that they've, they've had to see so much change in so many ways. And many of them have come from other places. That's the other thing. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, pretty much from, from Tampa on the Gulf to Daytona on the ocean, it's not totally built up, but it's, it's pretty consistent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and these people are not yokels. They're very sophisticated people. You know, they do business. As I say, they're corporate, they're entrepreneurial. Um, and they live in this world, in this economy. And they travel. And now with the Internet and cable, I mean, there's no such thing as being off, you know, off the grid. I mean, if you, if you don't want to be off the grid. Right. It's still possible if you want to. But, I mean, and, and most of these kids, their kids go to public schools. I mean, some go to Christian schools, but most go to public schools, uh, you know, most other kids go on to college, often state colleges, where they mix with all sorts of people, increasingly diverse people. And, you know, where once evangelical Christianity in the South was very much racially bifurcated, um, and, uh, you know, straight white, um, the world's changed mm-hmm. in many ways. And, uh, you know, God loved the Baptists, you know, in 95, I guess it was, um, you know, they said we were wrong on race, and we've been wrong on race for a long time, and there was a sincere turnaround, and you see people, you know, and I think that's coming as far as gay people go. I think um, the days when, uh, you know, when the Southern Baptist Convention threw Binkley Baptist in Chapel Hill out of the denomination for accepting gay members, you know, under, under uh, Dean Smith, God rest his soul, um, those days are gone, you know, and uh, not as if you know, the Baptists are going to embrace gay marriage because that's 
not going to happen. Mm-hmm. No time soon anyway. But in terms of you know who is to be welcomed and who is to be shunned, is a huge sea change uh, in American Protestantism. Uh, and it's interesting here because you're talking about the the meeting you're going to tonight, and yet. You know, when the National Religious Broadcasters came down, they wouldn't even have a moment of silence. And it was almost right after the shootings. And I had somebody on here from Soul Force that had gone down to protest and tried to convince them at least do something, have a prayer, have a moment of silence for the victim. They wouldn't do anything, you know? Well, so it's, they're, they're still stuck. There's still people stuck in that. Well, where, wherever you see institutions controlled by old white men, mm-hmm. you will find them more resistant to change. You know, and, you know, nature will solve that problem. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, because not only the people who control some of these institutions, but uh, are, are going to, you know, pass from this mortal coil, but the people who are their key demographic are going to pass too. And if they want those institutions to survive, they're going to have to adapt to a different demographic, a younger, more open dem- demographic. Well, talking about demographics. Seventy, so. Yeah. Okay, I got you. I understand. Um, you're a little, little further down the road than I'm, but not all that much further. It's talking about though adapting. Um, you have your book, uh, "Amazing Gifts: Stories of Faith, Disability, and Inclusion." What led you to uh, to write that? Well, I was laid off by the Sentinel in 2008. Not after the and, billionaire uh, bought it. Yeah, that's that's a very sad story, and I don't want to go. Into no, it. I know you don't want to go there. I just I, when I saw that, um, um, very few things yeah, make um, my made my draw, jaw drop over the years. But when I saw the video, <laughs> I just I mentioned it yeah, to you in an email. I mean, I mean, the guy was a moron, you know, just, and mm. uh, and is destructive in his stupidity. You know, people who make a lot of money in one area, right, think that makes them a genius in all areas. Mm-hmm. Not true. Not mm. true. Um, but anyway, I I was laid off in in '08, and I was. Looking around, I had already I had seen the end coming by the 1990s, which is why I started writing the books. I wanted to sort of have a back door for when the end came for me. Um, I, I knew it was coming, so I had written, let's see, one, two, three books by that time. And none of them, I mean, they, some of them did okay, but none of them made enough to replace my salary. And, um, and so some people came to me chiefly um, a woman named Ginny Thornburg, who is the wife of Dick Thornburg, who was in the Reagan cabinet and governor of, of Pennsylvania, who has uh, a family member who they've opened their eyes to disability issues, and they're a very faithful family, so they were pretty interested in that aspect. And some other families have, had put some money together, and they wanted a book that dealt with um, how houses of worship and faith communities across the spectrum had dealt with um, disabilities, both physical, intellectual, and emotional, to bring people into worship. And so I had only written like three or four pieces on the subject in my career, and I said, you know, are you sure I'm your guy? I said, you know, I don't have a disability. You know, no member of my family has a disability. I said, are you sure that maybe someone with a disability might be a better person to write the book? He said, no, no, we want you. and so they made me an offer, and I mean, they paid me what the contract says what it is advance on royalties, but I knew that was never going to happen. I knew <laughs> a book like this, while, while, while important and valuable, was what I call my mitzvah project. It's a good deed that needed to be done. 
and and they paid me fairly. I mean, I wouldn't say they didn't pay me fairly, but mm-hmm. it was basically they paid me to write the book, and it wasn't the royalty advance. And um, you know, it turned out to be a kind of book of best practices of sixty short, basically fifty short uh, stories about how different congregations dealt with different things, and some failed. I mean, some tried and failed, which we wanted to be part of the book so that everybody wasn't a superhero because, you know, a lot of, you know, I mean, how a person may triumph, you know, get to the Olympics or win a Nobel Prize or whatever, though, having some disability, it's fine as inspiration, but sometimes it's so far away from the average person's experience that they don't even try. Whereas if you talk about, you know, average people struggling, you know, to do this and trial and error, our thought was that would be a more valuable uh, contribution to American culture. It feels like an important book. It's a shame that it's not in the hands of more churches and more people who could really learn from it. Right, right. Well, we live in faith, as you know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I wanted to ask you, before I get too far away from it and forgot, I know you you talked about you worked in China. You also had covered... uh, um, the uh, un- uh, unrest in Northern Ireland. What What is the United States, what are we missing in this country about spirituality in the rest of the world? Well, I think there's a, the, the difficulty in my view is, is the overlay between faith and, and tribalism. Um, they sometimes get mixed up. Uh, sometimes it's for defensive purposes. I mean, Jews have been, in some sense, tribal over the years and the millennia at this point from around the world, is that that's what enables them to keep their culture. And in some places, it's almost, you look at the Central African Republic where Christian militias are battling Muslim militias, it's a matter of, of survival. And, you know, how much of it is cultural, uh, that provides a cultural comfort for people, and how much of it is, strictly speaking, spiritual, a voluntary spiritual choice, and people who may leave the tradition of their parents, let's say Christian and become Buddhist or, or Hindus, they're drawn not by the tribal part of it. They don't want to be Indian. You know, they don't want to be Asian. They want that. They're drawn specifically by the spiritual element of the tradition that they follow. Whereas a lot of people just follow the ones they were born into. You know, and that's what they do. And that's why I found... You know, when I was in Northern Ireland uh, in the 70s, uh, the, the, you know, there's a lot of history, and it goes back to Cromwell, and um, it's a long, sad story of about 800 years, but um, in which the in which the English are usually the villains. Uh, but um, what what happened? One of the the, the key elements is that it, there was not a, a secular public school system in Northern Ireland that most people went to Catholic schools or Protestant schools. And that basically locks you in to your residential community until you're 18 and likely shapes you for the rest of your life. Whereas in this country and other democracies that have a large, larger secular education system, people are compelled to mix with other people. And so it's a socializing agent. And that's what I think is one of the problems. And, you know, sometimes you just can't fix it. I don't think the Northern Ireland, people in Northern Ireland want to go to a public secular education system. So now they have overcome it in lots of ways. You know, there are, there are modern European 
you know, people who are maybe more concerned with, you know, the e leaving the EU than with, um, you know, whether they're going to become part of the Irish Rep Republic. Um, and there's business and there's commerce and there are all these American companies that won't tolerate the sort of cultural antipathy. They won't bring their factories there. You know, and the factories mean stable, good, well-paying jobs. And so sometimes sort of capitalism can sort of drag you out of some old bad habits. Sometimes not, maybe more often not, but uh, that's the way it sometimes works out. And, you know, and, and yet here in this country, even though we do have a public education system, there's it's still, and the South is a really good example. I'm sure you've seen it, but the Deep South is still... An example of the public schools of the the, the haves and have-nots, and to a large degree, most of those kids are evangelical Christian and are not warm to other ideas and other kids that aren't. And if the current administration has this way; they're going to be more white and more homogenous. And uh, so we right, do have we, do, of, we have sort yeah, of created our of, own problem here. Right, the rise of vouchers and charter schools. You saw the latest is 10.6 billion cuts from mental health and student loan repayment for service and things to 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 do the voucher thing. Yeah, I mean, I can only do so much. <laughs> well, I was hoping you could fix it right I, then. I'm sorry, I was yeah, kind of right, counting on you to right, fix that for me. Right. right. <laughs> now, are you still yeah, politi I mean, are you still politically active though? Or are you? Well, I I am and I'm not. Um, Actually, my my brother's the politician of the family. My brother Paul is a, a Maryland state senator um, from Prince George's County, outside the District of Columbia, and he's the more activist person. Um, I still write about political issues in which I have a special interest, and generally speaking, politicians in which I have a, a particular interest. I mean, I, if they don't, if there's not something going on, if I don't think there's really something valuable about a politician, I won't waste my time. As I say, I'm 70. I, I'm cognizant of how much, how I allocate my time, both in reading and writing and watching, and I don't want to waste my time, you know, particularly in the era we're living under in Topic A. I have no interest in letting Topic A invade and occupy my brain. Mm -hmm. um, but we had, we had, you know, the, the Occupy movement was in Orlando, and I, I marched with them. I I still know how to lace up my my marching shoes, but I would say most of my political activities is filtered through my journalism, which is less and less, but longer and longer. Um, I don't like to do hit or miss stories, and and frankly, with 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 the books that I write, uh, although actually I have taken a slight detour, I'm now writing uh, books about um, nonfiction crime and murder, which kind of takes me back. Full circle yeah, I want to ask you about that in one second. What if, what if the the Duke University student version of you were uh, writing today about what's going on? Can you imagine? Well, actually, yes. Of course, Nixon was uh, there. I mean, yeah, you didn't, it's not exactly like right. you were. No, no, he was there. Uh, although I did write a piece when they were thinking about putting the Nixon Library at Duke. I wrote a piece called "Nixon Were Dead" and other arguments um, regarding the the presidential library but um, I think there's a lot more um, the barriers to entry are much lower if you want to be a journalist you don't want to work on the campus paper um, or try to get in with one of the magazines 
you know, the web, for all its detriments, which is usually no money or very little money, it does offer you the opportunity to break through kind of much earlier and, and on your own. The but, problem is, you know, most of it is not paid. Yeah, nothing's vetted either. That's the only thing that concerns me. Uh, that's true. It's true. And then and so it puts more on you. I mean, there are no copy editors pretty much anymore. Right. And so you don't want to – you have the freedom, but you also have the freedom to embarrass yourself. <laughs> and so when I worked for the, for the Campus Daily, we had editors, but also we had – I think we, our circulation was about 6,000 a day. But it – but in terms of the intelligence of the concentrated intelligence of the audience meant that if you screwed up, you would hear about it. Right. And it's not as if you your whole career would be ruined. It's just a campus paper. So I worry that the that I worry the, error stuff. I just worry the capacity of some of these people posting things online to be embarrassed is long since passed. <laughs> sure they'd be embarrassed. Well that's true I think, but but there's a sort of informal informal meritocracy and that is if, if it's sloppy and messy and there's mistakes, you won't go beyond a small audience. True. If, if you want to rise to even the possibility of being paid for your work or having appearing at, at some of the more prestigious, although there's shifts from month to month, one of the more prestigious sites, um, it's the people that decide whether your stuff is good enough to move up. Um, that's very brutal. I mean, if you if you make spelling mistakes, if you make... If you make grammar mistakes, if you make logical mistakes, you'll stay where you are. You'll be able to reach whoever you want to reach, but it's not likely your audience will grow or, or that you'll be paid. And that's, well, very Dar that's a very Dar Darwinian way. Of I, I, I hope you're right. Uh, you're more optimistic about it than I am. I, I'll be honest with you, but I hope you're right on that. But I didn't want to get too far because we've been talking a while and you started, I interrupted you. Uh, tell me about the, your latest book and how that, how you've been working on that for a while, I understand. The murder book, yeah. yeah. Um, well, uh, it, it has a little bit of a, of a history to it. Um, in 2013, I wrote my first true crime book. But that the genesis of that book went back to 1971 when I was at Duke. And a woman, anti-poverty worker, young woman named Nancy Dean Morgan, um, was working for an organization called VISTA, which stands for Volunteers in Service to America, which was often described as the Domestic Peace Corps, was up in western North Carolina in uh, Madison County and was kidnapped, raped, and murdered while I was still at Duke. And the, the crime was never solved, and it just stuck with me and rankled me. And so that when I got antsy at the L.A. Times around 1993, 1994, I thought, I need to come back to this and, and bring to bear all I've learned about reporting um, and bring it to bear on this case, because she was sort of one of us. And... Uh, and so I spent off and on from 94 to 2013 writing the first book, which was called Meadow on the Mountain. And it in included a lot of stuff about, you know, religion in western North Carolina. I quoted Bishop Francis Asbury, the, the circuit writer, who was in Madison County in the, in the early part of the, of the 19th century, and the history of the Civil War history of Madison County. I, I, it was the book of my heart as my evangelical friends like to say. Um, it's all okay, got good reviews, didn't make a lot of money, but I was glad I wrote it and proud of the work. At that time, when that book came out, uh, my wife's sister, we're a sort of extended Duke family. Um, I went, 
my wife went, my wife's sister went, my son went, my daughter went. So my wife's sister had gravitated to, she'd become a social worker and an attorney. She's gravitated to a specialty called death penalty mitigation, which is regardless of guilt or innocence to keep people from being executed. And she said, in the way that in-laws have a way to needle people, she said, if you ever finish your Madison County book, I have another story for you. And so I did finish the Madison County book, and she said, I, I want to bring this story of a case that I worked on. I think you'll find it, it interesting. And uh, it didn't have as much of the political content and the sociological context that I look for in my criminal cases, but she sent me all this material. She jump-started me with like 15 file boxes of court records and, uh, more importantly, though, letters from the victim and the killer, uh, journal entries, emails. Incredible. It took me six months to get through it. Uh, set, it begins in, Mont in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, and then tracks its way out to Boulder, Colorado, and then works its way up into uh, rural Wyoming, which I didn't realize at the time. And so um, I went back to work on murder. It's a very grim story. It's a, it's a double parasite. A young man who spent, was very gifted, went to Vanderbilt for a couple of years and just sort of kind of went crazy slowly. And his parents did everything they could to prevent it, but they couldn't. And he met, fell in with the wrong crowd, and he ultimately killed his parents and then was saved from the death penalty by my sister-in-law but then four years later killed himself in prison. And then there was a fourth death, uh, which I didn't realize when I started. And so um, I got involved in actually helping to solve this one in a way that I had never done before, which wouldn't have been acceptable as a journalist. But right. I was involved with the police. and then, But the story was so grim, really grim and tragic, that at some point I had to take a break from it. And to take a break from it, I said, well, maybe I should go back to The Simpsons. And so in the midst of the research for the murder book, I decided to write an e-book sequel to The Gospel According to The Simpsons, which basically would cover religion, spirituality, and the show from 2006, when the last edition was published, up through 2016. And the technology and the access had increased so much it was a lot easier uh, to access all the uh, episodes and the dialogue. Right. And so I took uh, really just about three months or four months, but it just sort of restored my... Now, is it available yet, or...? It is. It is. Okay. It's called The Gospel According to the Simpsons, A Newer Testament. Okay. Is that, is, that, is that on Amazon? Can you get it on Amazon, or...? It is. Amazon, right. uh, uh, Apple, and BN, also the major tr platforms. Right. And it's... Uh, Four ninety nine. It's not a long book, but you know, since a lot of the stuff is uh, from the show, it's you won't go more than a page or two without a joke. So there's that. Uh, yeah, I want to get back to that in a second. Uh, you, you you talked about the importance of spirituality to you, and you said you are still part of a community of faith down there in Florida. I am. Okay. Mm -hmm. And do you have any spiritual practices you find helpful? No, I think it's more in the way of a sort of still small voice. I mean, I only. You know, I only ask when it's really important. You know, you know I, I, I don't ask for the, you know, for my favorite flavor to be available at the ice cream store. Um, 
you know, when there are important things involving my family, particularly, um, I will ask, um, not in a not in a formal way, but in a personal way. And um, I find comfort when I go to services. I go to the uh, belong to the Congregation of uh, Reformed Judaism, and just out it's in in Orlando, and it's a it's a nice community, and I take solace and comfort in the ritual and the liturgy. Um, and I feel an emotional connection, whether I would define that as also a spiritual connection, fair enough. That's a toss-up. I don't want to elevate it too much. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also recognize forces moving in my life um, for which there's no natural explanation. I don't overdo it, but when things happen to you, when things come to you, um, I sense there's a greater purpose, but I don't try to dissect that. I acknowledge it. It's not just happenstance, but I don't try to examine it too closely. Well, there's the last couple of questions um, I uh, I ask pretty much everybody who's been on here. And so when you were talking about the murder book, and I thought about you know, we've had Shane Claiborne on here who does a lot of activist work and has just written a book about stopping the death penalty. And I don't know if you're familiar with Alan Bean. You ever heard of Alan? Not the astronaut, but he does. Uh, no. He, very interesting guy. You got to check him out. He um, does work for uh, social justice for minorities in the Deep South who have been wrongly imprisoned and other things. And he's kind of done it on his own dime. He's had to work on the side to do a lot of this stuff. Very interesting fellow. He was on a couple of weeks ago, too. But I just thought about those things when you were talking about that. But these last two things are a little lighter. Uh, I know you talked about The Simpsons. First of all, so what makes you laugh? What kind of things make you laugh? Clever things. I think also humor with a point of view. Um, general humor, um, broad humor doesn't really do it for me anymore. Um, I like pointed humor particularly. And, and my window of what makes me laugh has really narrowed in recent years. I mean, I used to love uh, John, John Stewart, uh, particularly his first, the first act of his show, which was the best of the three acts. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, every so often I'll watch, you know, I'll look at the clips. I, I won't religiously watch Saturday Night Live. I'll sometimes, the next day, I'll, I'll look at the cold open. Um, I don't watch late night TV, so every so often I'll watch a Colbert clip, but I won't watch Colbert. Um, um, so yeah, I like humor with the point of view, and I guess humor, honestly, that I that I agree with. Um, you know, I mean, some of the the Trump stuff is just too easy. I mean, mm-hmm. I agree with it, but it doesn't make me laugh. Okay. I don't think it's particularly clever. Sometimes there'll be clever stuff. I like, I say, I like clever, and I like point of view are there particular movies and you said you don't watch a lot of television are there particular movies that are your favorites comedy or just regular well comedy or regular um you know i'm, I'm becoming a cliche and then I'm, I'm i'm watching a lot more pbs um uh, we get showtime we don't get hbo but we get showtime and i like uh i like some of the shows there um I don't have, I guess, I don't have what you would call a appointment TV. Mm-hmm. You know, I like, I like Masterpiece Theater, but again, that puts me in the sort of cliche category. But um, 
uh, I like wit. I like really good wit. I don't watch chat chat shows. Anymore. Well, you, you said you do still see movies. What, do you go see movies, or do you watch them on television? Or I like to go to the movies. Still. Right. Um, and uh, and again, my taste. You know, I like indie films particularly. Again, I'm getting the sort of snobby cliche category. But, I mean, there's an art house right around the corner from us, which I love, a theater called the Enzion Theater, which runs wonderful things. They have a film festival, including some, they have a Jewish film festival, an Asian film festival, uh, LGBT film festival. Uh, but there's also multiplex near us, and, and it's got 20 screens, and whoever programs it programs one of those screens for indie films. and uh, Or sometimes I'll call them... Uh, I call them the SAT films. <laughs> it's like it's like if, if you go to the multiplex, um, it's the movie which has the highest average uh, average SAT scores of the audience. <laughs> I don't think that's as much cliche as just getting to a certain age group that we're in, Mark. I'm yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, again, I I only have so much time, and I just don't want to waste my time exactly. with uh, with goofy stuff. But you know, for occasionally, you know, if if it's if I think there's a reason. I'll go to a show like I went to the um, the Mel Gibson World War II movie, mm-hmm. uh, Heartbreak Ridge, or yeah, something like that. And um, I read some interesting things about it, even though you know, obviously Mel Gibson has a lot of baggage. Um, but I thought it was a really, it was a very, very good movie. And I noticed, my wife and I both noticed that a little bit of, uh, I guess what you would call philo-Semitism, a, a very positive. Jewish character just in passing, and uh, and I wrote a little column about it because it struck me. I mean, Jews notice how they're portrayed in popular culture, you know, from uh, from the Merchant of Venice to Oliver Twist. I mean, mm-hmm. we we know how we're portrayed, and it's both positive and negative. And this was a positive, a brief positive portrayal of a Jewish medic, uh, and. Uh, it caught my eye, and I pursued it, and it turned out there was something to it. It was no accident. Very little of what you see or hear on the screen, large or small, is there by accident. Mm-hmm. You can pretty much guarantee that. Um, when you said you wrote a column, who, where are you writing columns for now? Is It, um, it depends. Um, uh, if it's a, a general religious theme, I occasionally write for a religion news service, mm-hmm. and that stuff gets picked up around the country sometimes. If it's particularly Jewish, I write for two um, for two platforms. One is called the Tablet, and the other is called uh, the Jewish Daily Forward. They're sort of intellectual—not too intellectually, but I mean, sort of intellectual-ish, um, uh, lefty-ish. Um, but a very their audience. They're not real big the audiences, but they're very sharp, and so um, issues that that attract me I'll I'll write there well what what's next I'm I know you got the murder book to finish up what what's what else is on your agenda what are you working on next well I'm working on a piece I won't be too specific which I've just um, I've just uh, offered to Politico magazine about a politician we have here who says you can be both uh, progressive and evangelical and that there's no real contradiction and we'll see wow I want to read that. I'm looking. I'm going to be searching Google for that. I got to set up a Google alert. Okay. That sounds and, like uh, uh, that sounds sort of like parting the Red Sea. I don't know. I think so. 
I think so. I think it's a fascinating. I don't know whether he's, his candidacy is going to go anywhere, but I think he's sincere. He's both a sincere progressive and a sincere evangelical with the pedigree and the life experience. I mean, we're talking fellowship of Christian athletes. We're talking about Campus Crusade. We're talking about um, wife who's on Christian TV. We're talking a guy who belongs to a... Um, a sort of Gen X, Gen Y, millennial, non-denominational evangelical church, where he's an elder. I mean, he's serious about all this stuff. And yet, but he's also pro-choice. Strange. Hmm. But he's also very much uh, LGBT-friendly as well. And I think he may be a political unicorn. I don't know. That's well, I don't line. know. I think we talked about earlier in this this discussion that there is a broadening of vision, and I mentioned his name, and I'll mention it again because I really think he was one of the guys who really started doing this among evangelicals and has still paid the price for it, I think, financially, is Brian McLaren, who has been talking about the right. idea of a generous orthodoxy for 20 years, you know? Right. And uh, so and, I, I do um, think that that, inter- that idea is growing, and maybe that's what's in his mind. It, there is a growing number, there are a growing number of of people who have at some point in their lives considered themselves evangelical of some stripe that are beginning to see a bigger tent and a bigger a bigger picture. And the other piece, um, it's, it's not next on my list, but it's the one after the next one, is um, a megachurch pastor who, was, who, who led his congregation from downtown to a large campus outside of town grew it to more than 10,000 people. Um, there were some bad feelings of, on the part of people who stayed behind in the old building downtown who were forced to, to pay for it. They said pay for it a second time because they helped build it. And then uh, he had a successful career at the megachurch, then retired under totally honorable circumstances and planned to live part of the year with his wife uh, up in Madison County by coincidence. And then his wife uh, became ill with Alzheimer's, and so they had to give up the uh, the North Carolina place and stay here in town. And meantime, the down the old downtown church was shrinking and shrinking and shrinking to about 70 people. And at one point, they came to him and said, "Would you consider coming back, if only until we find a younger pastor?" And he said, "Well, you sure there's no." You know, residual bad feelings from the split. He said, "No." He said, "No." Most of those people are gone now, and because it would enable him to stay in town with his wife um, and still preach, he accepted the pulpit. And that's—I find that an interesting. Oh, that's very interesting. Journey, interesting journey. Well, Mark, I really appreciate you taking time. It's, it's always fun to talk to somebody else who, who's still got a little bit of ink in their veins, even though nobody's really making ink that much anymore, I don't guess. <laughs> right. Well, I, it, for me, it's always good to talk to somebody from uh, the old North State, which is where I still own land in that Orange County. And uh, actually, we're going up to, uh, my wife and I are flying to Durham on Saturday. She's going to have back surgery at uh, Duke Medical Center. And so we we still have a strong support system in the Triangle. So uh it's always good, and when I'm in when I'm in the gym, I have tune-in radio, so I I listen to uh, Frank Stacio's uh, State of Things uh, on WUNC. Well, and when, I try to get up to Western North Carolina when I can, I get back to Madison County when I can. Well, when people uh, are going to the gym, uh, any of your books available on audio for download? 
just I think just the, the just the first Simpsons book. Okay. It's, okay. But for but, any, any other companies, it's available. There we go. We'll make Audible, Audible, you're listening. Uh, the uh, but all your books and and anything they need to know about your books is available on Amazon, or they can go to your website, which is Either just one. markpensky.com. It tells. That's it. Right. Markpensky.com will do it, or or Amazon. All my books are available both uh, in print and uh, as uh, as eBooks as well. Fantastic. Well, like I said, I appreciate your time, man. Thanks a lot. Well, thanks for having me. I'm just sorry it took so long to connect us. Talking to Mark reminded me that uh, I need to talk to more uh, frontline kind of journalists who have uh, a concept of faith and hope in a world that uh, is, is far from perfect. Uh, Thinking God podcast started that, and as our theme music always brings it out, you know, we're trying to work through the cracks where the light gets in and, and recognize it when it comes in, and, and Mark gets that. And if you haven't looked at any of his books, I'd encourage you to do that. Also, Google him and read some of his current uh, writings that he's writing for several uh, publications. You want to check that out. He is a good writer. And his Simpsons book, as we mentioned, was The Forge, written by Tony Campolo, who is Homer Simpson in the flesh with the children Bart and Lisa, and his wife is not um, Marge, but she's Maggie, so I could work that out. Anyway. I uh, appreciate it. Also, as I've said every week, I'm getting a lot of email and uh, a lot of feedback on the Thinking God podcast, uh, suggestions for guests, uh, suggestions for some other things, and I do appreciate every single person who takes a little time out to let me know they listened and to let me know what they liked and what they didn't like, and I hope those will keep coming in. You can email me if you can't find the email address. It's just podcast at thinkinggod.com. Our... Uh, website is thinkinggod.com and you can find us also on Facebook, the Thinking God Podcast on Facebook. That's it for this week. Hope you'll join me again next time for the Thinking God Podcast where we do look for light and hope and faith in a world that wants to push darkness out of the Find the light that guides you through a cloudy day When the stars ain't shining bright You feel like you've lost your way